Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Woody Hatali. And we are very excited uh, to welcome to the show today a guest who I, you know, I I will tell you, um, McKay, that when the book came out, I was like, "Hmm, I don't know. <laughs> and not about you and your writing. No, no, not at all about you it. and your writing. We, we, we try to diss our guests right from the get. <laughs> not about Humble you and your them, writing. and then we build them up for the next thirty we, minutes. Exactly. Um, but uh, McKay Coppins uh, is the author of the biography Romney: A Reckoning, um, which got tons, you know, tons and tons of of great reviews. Um, I make the joke because I was like, meh, because. You know, Romney. Um, but- That's how a lot of people feel about Mitt Romney. I I, I understand the sentiment. He he might be the quintessential candidate of all time. But you, I but I, I will turn it over to Wash, who does our wonderful movie phone introduction of our brilliant guest. Well, okay. Well, thank you for indulging me, uh, McKay. Uh, I haven't been able to do this for a while, so just uh, indulge my immaturity. It's my movie phone introduction. <laughs> McKay Romney. Uh, no, sorry. What? Uh, McKay Romney. McKay, hey, I, I want to go on the. I have no relation to Mitt Romney. I feel like that's important to. As, as I was reading the, the intro, as I was reading the introduction, I'm like, that's not his name. Okay, let me start again. <clears throat> Take two. Romney: A Reckoning is a 2023 biography about the political life of U.S. Senator Mitt Romney. The book covers 25 years of American politics, based on 30 interviews with Romney and thousands of private emails text messages, and diary entries. The book is written by McKay Coppins, no relation to Mitt Romney, who's also a reporter on politics and religion at The Atlantic. Thank you for indulging me. That's great. I feel great after that. <laughs> Much better than, than Danielle's introduction. I have to say. We, see, this is how we operate, hot and cold, sweet and sour. Like we cover it. the gamut. It's like a good cop, bad cop yeah, thing here. It's we're good. like we're like Sour Patch Kids. <laughs> um, so, McKay, let's let's start off with this. You know, again, um, Mitt Romney has been a on the political scene a force for decades upon decades. We know everything you know that unfolded with the 2012 uh, election. 
um, and also from his, uh, from the documentary, Mitt, right? That kind of gave us, I think, for the first time, a real inside view um, into him. What made you decide, and I guess him decide, to spend two years um, speaking to you intimately, you know, um, about his life, about his thoughts on his party? Like, why was this the moment for him and you the person? I think if there like just a short answer to your question is January 6th was the thing that changed his mind and and made him compelling to me. So I um I had covered him for a long time. Uh I I covered his 2012 presidential campaign. Uh had written about him, you know, periodically over the years after that when he came to the Senate, I profiled him for the Atlantic. And so I started to get to know him a little bit. I was in you know, kind of in contact with him now and then. And after January 6th, I could tell that he, like something was going on with him. Like he, you know, he had been known as this very cautious, very calculating politician who like never really said what he thought and always stuck to his talking points. And just in my brief kind of interactions with him, conversations with him after January 6th, I could tell he was asking himself really difficult and sort of unusual questions for somebody in his situation. Like, first of all, about what had happened to his political party. In one of my very first interviews with him, he said, uh, a very large portion of my party doesn't really believe in the Constitution. Mm. And that that was like the framing sentence for the next two years of interviews that we had, where he had kind of come to this realization that the leaders of his party, that a lot of the rank and file members of his party didn't really believe strongly in democracy for its own sake, right? They believed in the parts of the Constitution, like the Second Amendment that they agreed with, but mm -hmm. not not in the rights of, you know, <laughs> of everybody. And they didn't believe necessarily in uh, the, out, you know, honoring the outcome of presidential elections if it didn't turn out the way they wanted it to. And, you know, he had watched the leaders of his party instigate an attempted insurrection. And that kind of shook something loose in him. And so, you know, to me, what made him compelling was that he was asking himself difficult questions, he was willing to be a, a little bit vulnerable, in a way that politicians, especially those who are still in office aren't usually. And also, frankly, he was just kind of giving everything up, like right from the mm. beginning, he gave me all of his, his his journals, his email correspondence, he was showing me text messages with Mitch McConnell, um, like he he was kind of just willing to hand everything over without taking editorial control, because that was my one, you know, thing at the beginning, I was like, look, I want to do this if you're ready to be candid, but I, I'm not going to let you veto uh, what goes in the book. Like mm. he, he, I, I get to decide what goes in the book and he agreed to that. And so just as a reporter, as a journalist, and then, you know, as a biographer as well, the, the, he seemed like a really interesting person as uh, to look at what had happened to American politics and especially yeah. the Republican party over the last 30 years. And especially over the last 10 years, right? Because Danielle and I are old enough to remember that Mitt Romney ran for president. He was a Republican <laughs> presidential candidate in 2012. I'm not making this up, folks. Go to Wikipedia. It doesn't lie. <laughs> Mitt Romney was the flag bearer of the GOP. And the flag bearer of the GOP is now pilloried and ridiculed alongside John McCain, who, by the way, children, was a 2008 <laughs> Republican nominee. And I say this because you just fast forward 11 years, and I cannot imagine 
the flag bearer of a party saying this quote. This is a quote that Mitt Romney said about four days ago, and I'm, I want to quote him. Uh, this is what he said, quote, I'd be happy to vote for a number of the Democrats too. It would be an upgrade, in my opinion, from Donald Trump and perhaps also from Joe Biden, unquote. And he said he would vote for any Republican except maybe Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, aside from Donald Trump. So the fact that, I just want to like sit with this for a moment. A man who has dedicated his life to the Republican Party, a man who is a senator, a man who ran for uh, president, is openly saying he is open to voting for a Democrat in 2024 than Donald Trump. And, and the question that I have for you, McKay, based on what you, your opening, you know, what, what kind of galvanized you to write this book after his very dis disturbing assessment of his own party, is, is Mitt Romney the last Republican? Mm. It's a great question. I mean, I, I think in some ways he, he might be the last person to win the Republican presidential nomination in his lifetime, maybe in my lifetime, who represents that kind of old old guard view of what the Republican Party stood for, for better and worse, right? I mean, whatever you think of the Republican Party of the like Reagan, McCain, Bush era, it represented something somewhat different from what the Donald Trump uh, era party stands for, right? And I think that it is kind of striking to think that that he is so far outside of his party. And I can attest to this too. By the end of our conversations in our two years, he was openly talking to me about leaving the party, uh, you know, wh whether that meant starting a new party or becoming an independent or whatever. He, he was that he's so alienated by this era, this version of the party that he he doesn't feel like he fits inside of it anymore shows how much it's changed. I mean, <clears throat> he told me that one of the the most disturbing trends that he realized early on in the Trump era was that the the Republican Party was shedding, in his own words, thoughtful people, reasonable people, mm -hmm. compassionate people, and that what was left in the party was kind of a core of angry, resentful individuals. These are mm. his words. And then institutions that were designed to keep them that way, whether they were in the media or in, in government politics, that the whole Republican apparatus was about kind of, you know, leaning into Trumpian grievance and fanning those flames constantly, keeping the voters angry, right? And, you know, he's seen it in his own family. I, I write in the book about how he has five adult sons, none of whom identify as Republicans anymore. And, you know, 10 years ago, they were campaigning with him. Some of them were Republican delegates in, in their respective states. None of them consider themselves Republicans anymore. It just speaks to how Mitt Romney's kind of style of Republicanism is so out of vogue in the GOP today. You know, and 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 it's funny because not only is it out of vogue, but you get the sense, honestly, through through your book and just through his demeanor, how depressing it is. Like how how kind of depressed he has become in terms of this is a part. I mean, if you run for president, my assumption is that you you know before let's just say before twenty you run for president, the assessment is that you love this country, that you feel like you have something to offer this country, that you love your party much in the way that athletes go to the Olympics. And it is an honor to represent your party. And so within such a short period of time from 2012 and his loss 
to the rise of Trump in 2016, to the absolute bottoming out of just traditional politics as a whole, but Republicanism as he's come to understand it, it might like when you talk like you you had said something uh in in one of your interviews where you're just like you know he would like kind of pontificate out like to himself like that yeah. he's grappling you know kind of you know i imagine him like a, like a like in a dickens novel <laughs> like sitting and being like where did we go wrong I, you know well- this isn't very a very Dickensian scene, but I remember eating pepperoni pizza at his kitchen table once at his, you know, Capitol Hill townhouse where most of the interviews took place. And we were eating pizza and he was like ranting about, I can't even remember, something Matt Gates had said. It was like, you know, the latest like ridiculous thing that some prominent Republican had done. And he started to go off on just like, what has happened to this party? And, and then he had this moment where he his eyes like fixed on the the table ahead of him and he almost like forgot that I was there because it sounded like he was talking to himself and he said I mean it's almost like how can I even be a part of this party anymore and I think that kind of was the question that he kept asking himself over the course of our 2 years certainly of interviews but really throughout ever since Donald Trump has become the nominee I think he keeps asking himself like what is keeping me in this party? Why am I still a Republican? And I asked him that question several times. I asked that question to people around him. And I remember one of his sons actually said to me, you know, like, we're, you know, I'm not a Republican anymore. And sometimes we ask, ask him, like, Dad, what are you doing? Like, why are you still in the GOP? And what he would say is, it, well, it, his son's take was that he feels this loyalty to the GOP that's born of his own, his dad's experience. His dad, George Romney, was a liberal Republican governor of Michigan, ran for mm-hmm. president. Um, and he was, George Romney was, uh, was in the Republican scene at a time when the GOP was being taken over by Barry Goldwater and the radical right. And George Romney's approach was, I'm going to stay and fight for the soul of my party. Right. He went to the convention in 1964. He refused to endorse Goldwater. He tried to get a plank added to the platform in favor of civil rights. It got shot down. But like his his approach was, I I need to do everything I can to try to save this party. I think Mitt has has felt that same call, you know, almost like, you know, following in his dad's footsteps. I'm going to try to stay and save the party. But I think what he's found increasingly over the last few years in the Senate is that it, it, the party doesn't want to be saved. It's certainly not mm. by Mitt Romney. Like it, it the the yeah. e, the Republicans he knows in the Senate and elsewhere either actively agree with Donald Trump and like what he's done to the party, or are far too scared and you know craven to do anything about how the party is transforming. And I think that's part of why Romney has decided to retire. He he realizes there's really not much he can do for the party at this point. From The New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that forced David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. 
Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Well, speaking about the part of your book has juicy tidbits of where he does unload, quite frankly, about his colleagues, right? Uh, both the old guard, whom we were told uh, were uh, the adults in the room, people like Mitch McConnell, people like Chris Christie, and I guess you could say the new guard, right? Even Jorge Santos III. Oh, I'm sorry, George Santos. Um, <laughs> and uh, others like DeSantis. And, you know, there's a, I'm going to read some of these quotes and, and, and the question that I have after reading this quote for you, something to think about is, you know, after spending so much time with him, McKay, if he knew, if he knew this, what I'm about to say, what I'm about to, you know, your quotes uh, of him saying this, you know, is he complicit in your opinion or was he the stopgap? And this is what he says in your book about his colleagues with whom he, let's be honest, served with for years and defended. This is what he says about Donald Trump. Uh, he is unquestionably mentally unstable. He is racist, bigoted, misogynistic, xenophobic, vulgar, and prone to violence. That's a quote, folks. On Pence, he is a lapdog for Trump. No one had been more loyal, more willing to smile when he saw absurdities, more willing to ascribe God's will to things that were ungodly than Mike Pence. Chris Christie, another bridge and tunnel loudmouth. Uh, with DeSantis, he said, there's no warmth at all. He looks like he's got a toothache. <laughs> but he said, he's, he warned, I should say, he's much smarter than Trump. There's a peril to having someone who's smart and pulling in a direction that's dangerous. And then finally, Mitch McConnell, uh, the, the, the grim reaper of the Senate, and, I, and I, who's seen, by the way, as one of the last remaining adults in the room, uh, you wrote that Mr. Romney questioned, quote, which version of McConnell was more authentic, the one who did Trump's bidding in public or the one who excoriated him in their private conversations? Yeah, it's a I mean, the question of complicity that you're asking is in some ways the question that I kept asking throughout the book, right? And, and he was asking himself too. I, I mean, I think that's what made him interesting is that he was willing to kind of honestly grapple with questions of complicity. Um, I think in some of the cases of that you just, you know, quoted there, he's been pretty consistently outspoken against, for example, Donald Trump, right? Like that, what he, what you just read was a quote from an email he sent to Chris Christie during the 2016 primaries, uh, trying to talk Christie out of endorsing Trump. And I think that pretty, you know, 
cleanly lines up with things that he said in public about Donald Trump. Some of the other stuff I think is more revelatory. And I think, for example, Mitch McConnell is, is a case where on the one hand, you know, Romney has worked really closely with McConnell since he's been a senator and he's praised him in public. And I think in some ways he does respect the way that he kind of works the caucus, but he also kind of often was driven crazy by how McConnell was talking out both sides of his mouth, right? Like in private, he would say things like Trump is an idiot and Mitt, you're lucky you can say the things we all think, but we're not allowed to say. But then in public, he's constantly defending Trump and doing what Trump wants. And so, you know, I think that one of the things Romney kind of admitted to me was that throughout his career, there have been moments where he would rationalize the things that were in his self-interest, right? Mm -hmm. he, he would kind of reach this moment where he knew what he really thought or what he, he really wanted to do, but then he also knew what he had to do to win. Mm. And he would do the thing that it took to win and then talk himself into believing that it was also the right thing to do. And, you know, maybe it was be, his rationalization was, you know, I, it's important that I'm in the room because I'm the adult in the room and I, we need a voice of sanity there. That's often uh, what, what we've heard in the Trump era. And sometimes it was just, I would be a great president. I need to do what it takes to become president. And once I become president, I'll do so much good for people. And that's the rationalization that every presidential candidate in history has used to, uh, you know, talk themselves into doing things they knew they shouldn't do. And so, you know, I think that Romney recognizes now his capacity for self-rationalization, self-justification in a way that um, he probably didn't recognize or was trying hard not to recognize for a lot of his career. But the reason that I think his, his is an interesting case study is that this is the same psychology that his whole party is, is using, right? Like the Republican caucus, all of these senators in private will tell him, Mid, I'm so glad you're standing up against Trump. I'm so glad you're saying the stuff you're saying. I wish I could say the same stuff, but I can't because I'm, uh, you know, up for re-election or whatever. And that would drive him crazy. But like, that is where we've been for six years, seven years, eight years, whatever. Like, all these Republican leaders know that the stuff that they're defending is outrageous, dangerous, bad for democracy, bad for the country. But they're not willing to say it because it would hurt their own short-term political advantage. And so the question is, can we break that cycle? And, you know, I think that, like, th this book is not a, uh, an effort to turn Mitt Romney into a hero. It's not a hagiography. It's just kind of an effort to look at, like, here is a case of one politician who was able to break the cycle and start telling the truth. And what could, you know, are there any lessons we can take from that story that would incentivize other political leaders to start telling the truth as well? You know, what I think is really interesting about that first is the the idea that he actually has self-reflection and is grappling with complicity, which I feel like self-reflection is just devoid in the, you know, the, the Republican Party is just devoid of that whatsoever. They're not in the business of reflecting. They're in the business of doing and destroying. That being said, I think that what also needs to be aired out is the fact that he's able and you tell me, I find that Mitt Romney is able to say and do the things that he does because he is so wealthy, right? Because he has the, the, the wealth and the privilege 
that allows for protection and safety. And I think that, you know, it, it was it was said that, you know, a lot of these people that we see are not given protection, are not given security, right? Like if you want security, if you're being threatened on a regular basis, it's our tax dollars are not going to fund their security. They're doing that themselves. And so what part of it, McKay, do you think is this internal grappling? Yes, but is it also... I don't need these donors. I don't need this job. I don't need, I don't need really anything, you know, that allows him. Yeah. (laughs) You know? So I I think there is definitely something to that. And I'll tell you a story that I think makes that point. I will just point out though, that I don't know what the average, you know, net worth of a U.S. Senator is, but it's quite a bit higher than the average American. Like most of them are millionaires. So, you know, I'm, I'm just pointing that out because I think that it's important to understand that it's not just, you know, the, the lack of options that keeps these people needing to win reelection. You know, one of the things Romney told me was like, when I got to the Senate, I realized just how much psychic currency my fellow senators attached to their jobs, right? Mm. Like a lot, they, they, to them, they don't need the government paycheck, right? But they need the status that comes with the the position, the office, the staff, the trappings, right? And, And a lot of them are in their 60s, 70s, even 80s. And the idea of not being a senator is almost akin to death, right? Like they, they need that job. But to your point, After January 6th, um, Mitt Romney told me that he heard from a number of members of Congress, both in the House and the Senate, who who told him that they wanted and during the second impeachment trial, they wanted to vote to convict or impeach Trump, um, but that they decided not to do it because they were worried about the threat of political violence to them and their families. Right. They had been at the Capitol. They had seen this mob. They had seen how Trump incites violence and they were afraid. Right. For their physical safety and for their family's physical safety. And, you know, on one level, that that kind of outraged Romney. But on the other on another level, he said, like, I get it. He was paying five thousand dollars a day for private security for him and his family after January 6th. And he knew that even given the wealth that, you know, many members of Congress have, they can't afford $5,000 a day of private security, right? And so he is in a position where he was able to protect his family and guarantee their safety um, while speaking out against Donald Trump and and the insurrection. Um, But I think that was an important insight because I had Mm -hmm. no idea how much the fear of political violence Mm. factored into the psychology of Republican elected officials until I started working on this book. Because it turns out that that fear is omnipresent, at at least in the Trump era. The fear that, you know, some deranged Trump supporter will come after them with a gun or whatever, like that's there. And Mitt Romney told me himself a story about speaking to the Utah Republican Convention after January 6th and the two impeachment votes and everything. Um, and he he knew he would get booed and he got out there. And the But the booing was so intense at this convention that he couldn't even get through his speech and people were screaming. Mm. And, um, and he said there was a moment when he was on the stage where he found himself wondering if anyone in the, in the crowd had a gun, right? And like, 
the the question that all these stories kind of ask is is how long can the American project last if yep. our elected officials are making political decisions based on fear of violence from their constituents? Let, let me I, I don't know the answer to that. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Let me ask this final question. You know, it's it's the tragic irony that the Republican Party and Republican elected officials are held hostage by the monster that they nourished and created. Yeah. Um, and that was a big tidbit. And I'm glad you brought it up that I remember it uh, came out a month ago when we, you know, they were re- releasing excerpts of the book of that the 2012 presidential nominee has to have security detail for his family because he's seen as so out of touch that his own previous voters see him as complicit with the quote-unquote deep state that is threatening them. But there is a part and parcel of the Republican base that seems to be willing hostages, uh, and perhaps not hostages, but utterly complicit. And and the question that I have uh, for you, McKay, because um, you are a person of faith, you are Mormon. I've heard rumors you are a Mormon. There's rumors that (laughs) Mitt Romney... I'll confirm them. You are the sole representative of all Mormons. I'm the sole representative (laughs) of all Muslims. Daniel is the sole representative of all Black people. But Mitt Romney is also Mormon. His religion plays a a strong role uh, in his life. The latest studies still reveal that many religious Christians, perhaps not Mormons, and and I want you to weigh in on this, believe that Donald Trump despite all his flaws, his vulgarities, his sins, his crimes, is nonetheless the man whom God has chosen as a flawed vessel to correct this country. And as a person who has reported on politics and faith in the intersection of both, which is a bit Romney and his life, explain to us what you're seeing moving forward with this base that is willing to hold America hostage for quote-unquote faith. Yeah, I mean, it's been one of the most fascinating stories of the Trump era to me, and in some ways, one of the most demoralizing that I've covered. Um, You know, I've spent a lot of time in places like Iowa and South Carolina, interviewing conservative Christian Trump supporters. And like, I I will, I'll ask them a lot of the same questions. Like, so what do you think of the adultery? What do you think of the demonization of immigrants and refugees, right? How do you square that stuff with uh, you know, what you read in the Bible, with the 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 purported, you know, lessons of the New Testament, of you know, of Jesus's teachings, et cetera. And what what I've found increasingly, and I will I'll I'll make this distinction about Mormons in a second, but what I found increasingly is that for the most part, white evangelicals especially are not really supporting Donald Trump, certainly as a moral exemplar, and they're not really supporting him. Um, for any kind of theological reasons, it's it's much more about their own kind of status and power in society, right? And they felt like the the place of you know white 
conservative Christians in America has been threatened. Their place in the kind of social status hierarchy has been threatened. And what Donald Trump does is he comes in and says, I'm going to make sure that you get that place back in the status hierarchy in America, right? Um, <clears throat> I think one reason that Mormons, and I've written a lot about this, have have been much more averse to Donald Trump, and all the data shows that uh, you know, they they vote for him in much lower numbers. You know, uh, Republican Mormons used to be the most reliably Republican religious group in America. In 2016, I think 50 percent of Mormons voted for Donald Trump, which is a huge drop off from the 70 to 80 percent that most Republican presidential candidates got. I think part of it is because Mormons historically have not always enjoyed that place at the top of the social hierarchy. Right. And they see especially in his demonization of uh, Muslim immigrants, for example, Muslim refugees, it, kind of eerie historical echoes to the Mormon history when Mormons were sort of uh, constantly, you know, targeted by the government. Um, but I, I actually, and I'm going to be writing about this next year, I want to know how long that aversion can last, right? Because I, I've, I've already seen it anecdotally. I think that Mormons are being tempted by the same kind of partisan forces, but the right-wing media, et cetera, to, to kind of give in and just become full-throated Trump supporters um, that I think white evangelicals have already enjoyed. Uh, you know, uh, my question is just like, at what point do the kind of justifications of Trump's moral character become sort of so self-parodic that, they, <laughs> that they're impossible to sustain? I would have thought that we'd reached that point already, but uh, it, we haven't gotten there yet. And I think that, you know, the, the, these upcoming Republican primaries are going to be a really interesting insight into whether uh, conservative religious voters are ready to move on from Trump or if they're still enthralled in. Hold out, Mormons. Hold out. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm like, don't fall for the rope-a-dope. Just don't do it. Um, McKay, thank you so much uh, for making the time to join Democracy-ish. This was a really insightful uh, conversation. And folks, the book is Romney, A Reckoning, out now, and you should go and get it. Um, we greatly appreciate you. Uh, thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Mujahat Ali. And we will be back next week, if in fact we have a country left. Inshallah.